News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Happy Friday. Pete Callender here. So Politico turned its eyes to North Carolina, did a big story the other day, how Democrats got sidetracked in their swing state of the future. Says they've been buzzing about for years North Carolina is a battleground hotspot, but the party has never been able to push North Carolina into true toss-up state status like it has with Arizona and with Georgia. And this has gotten some pushback from some Democrats in North Carolina. Uh, One of them, Chaz Beasley, Charlotte attorney and a former two-time District 92 representative in the state house. Welcome to the program, sir. How are you? Hey, Pete. How's it going? Hey, all right. Uh, So I got to ask first off, you're a a lawyer. You following the uh, Murdoch trial down in South Carolina? (laughs) You watching any of that? Definitely. Um, It's (laughs) unbelievable. You couldn't write a crazier story. Sometimes truth is stranger than fiction, and this is one of those times. Yeah, it is amazing. Um, All right, so let's talk a little bit about the article. You've read it, I assume. Um, So one of the arguments that uh, some, and they quote a lot of different people in here. Um, So why do you think Democrats haven't sort of picked the lock uh, in turning North Carolina blue, particularly like with the U.S. Senate seats and with the presidential contest since Barack Obama won the state in 08? Well, one of the challenges starts right here at home in Mecklenburg County. You know, we were 93rd out of 100 counties in turnout here in Mecklenburg County, 45% turnout. Uh, That is really difficult when you have a county that has the second largest number of voters in it and is punching so far below its weight. I mean, you also look at the fact that down east, a lot of counties that are actually majority or plurality black had lower turnout than typical. So there's a lot of pieces that are moving here. Two of those are among marginalized groups. Two of those are among counties that are important, including right here in Mecklenburg County. So much has been uh, discussed about the urban-rural split, and this is actually part of uh, North Carolina, you know, political history and elections for, you know, 150 years. Uh, sort of your populists, your progressives, uh, your your business interest backed candidates and the like, and those uh, sort of coalitions change over time and uh, flip back and forth between uh, candidates. Um, and so I, I wonder, do you still see it as as a rural urban split? And then how do these suburban voters fit in? I think that the rural urban divide is important and it definitely plays a lot in every election. Um, but I do think that you're starting to see that the battleground is becoming the suburban counties. Um, and also, I think what you're going to start to see is that there's going to be a lot of battlegrounds among those, again, majority and plurality black counties where turnout makes the difference between those counties going blue and, gro- and going red. So uh, what I'll ask it in the form of a question. What do you think happens to the Democratic Party if uh, black voters vote more along the lines of other racial demographics, if they split their votes like Hispanics are now and white voters do? Well, it's interesting because one of the things that um, I was taught early on in politics was that black voters tend to vote with their feet. So you're actually not seeing black voters voting more Republican, um, at least in this past election. You saw um, in exit polling that black voters, both men and women, uh, voted over 90 percent for Sherry Beasley, um, the U.S. Senate nominee for the Democrats. Um, what you do see, however, is that turnout goes down, and turnout did go down this election 
Um, and that's really where you see the battle happen. And so I think that Democrats are going to have to make sure that they're engaging with black voters, uh, not just in the larger counties, but also down east and also starting to talk to uh, Latino voters and Hispanic voters, because the fact of the matter is three out of four registered Latino voters did not vote this past election. And that can't be a situation of, oh, well, they're just not doing their part. Part of that has to be engagement. And so we've got to do a better job of going to communities that may not feel like their voices are being heard enough. Right. So if they're voting, if these uh, different groups are voting with their feet by just not or or I guess, you know, voting on their couch or something like they're not going out to the polls. <laughs> uh, if that is the case, that seems like uh, it seems like opportunity for the GOP to to flip those voters if they're not willing to go at this point, they're not willing to go out and pull the lever for a Republican, but they are not willing to go out and vote at all for the Democrats. That seems like a that seems like a problem. Well, when a state like North Carolina, when it's so close, it's like in sports, uh, a game that's between, you know, a point or two in basketball, you know, you know, a shot here, a shot there can make all the difference. So we've really got to start thinking on the margin, thinking about the small hinges moving the big doors, because um, only a small difference in a lot of our rural counties could make the difference for Democrats or for Republicans. The fact of the matter is that our bigger counties are getting bluer and bluer by the year. That makes it harder for Republicans if they're not running up the score in rural counties. So if Democrats can just start holding the line in some of these rural counties, particularly in, in the diverse rural counties, uh, you might see the shoe on the other foot and the Republicans might be on the back foot. Right. So uh, Dr. William uh, uh, Barber, uh, formerly the you know, Moral Monday movement and uh, uh, chairman of the state NAACP, he was on MSNBC a few, well, I guess it was probably months ago, um, and he said that the Democrats need to stop chasing suburban voters. Do you agree with that? He said they should focus on poor and low wealth voters. Well, I think that, quite frankly, if we have our messaging tight, we can have a message that broadly applies and broadly appeals to a large number of voters. I think that the fact of the matter is there are a lot of issues that really are important to rural counties that are also important to suburban counties. We talk about the fact that in the legislative session, I'm pretty sure Medicaid expansion is going to come up. That's an issue that affects rural counties staying open. It also affects the fact that a lot of uh, suburban counties are growing very quickly and used to be rural counties not that long ago. And so they're growing fast and they're building out their infrastructure for health care, too. So I think a lot of times that we have to make sure we're not buying into an, uh, uh, a, a mentality that somehow views all of this as zero sum. And I'm not saying that's what uh, Reverend Barber was saying at all. But I do think that we can uh, have both. And you have seen that in a lot of states where broadly appealing messages have brought out voters of all types. One of uh, the people quoted in this Politico article is Wiley Nickel, now a congressman, but formerly uh, one of your colleagues up at the legislature. And uh, he's a a Democrat from Wake County, I believe. And uh, he touted um, centrism, which I thought was kind of interesting because he has like the lowest, (laughs) he has one of the lowest uh, scores from the conservative Civitas uh, index or whatever. So uh, so I'm curious about this, uh, this decision. Do you do you push for the most progressive policies and even in the uh in the write-up that i got uh from uh the organization that was that offered you up as a uh, as, as a guest um they say are they missing the mark entirely by backing candidates too progressive to achieve bipartisan harmony 
So what do you think about that? Well, I think that at the end of the day, what voters are looking for is authenticity in particular in a state like North Carolina. I mean, if you look at our recent history of the type of elected officials that we've sent to Washington or to the governor's mansion, they've been pretty variable when it comes to their politics. So I think that a lot of times what people are really looking for are people who, you know, they may not agree with on everything, but they tend to lead with their values and they position voters uh, and they talk to voters from a position of values. So I I don't necessarily think that it's about checking uh, each individual box um, on each policy issue. I think it's more about whether or not you're connecting with voters and whether or not they feel like you're going to go up to Raleigh or to Washington and fight for them and fight for the things that they believe in, even if sometimes you might come to conclusions that they wouldn't come to themselves. All right. So I guess along those lines on values, uh, just generally, do you think progressivism can go too far? I think that any political background uh, can go too far. But I do think that it's important to remember that we're in a society that changes year by year. People have varying opinions in that uh, window of what is on one side of the And it can definitely change depending on um, who's uh, in particular positions of power. And it can also change depending on um, who's actually messaging around the issues. So I think that oftentimes what people are really looking for is not necessarily someone that comes to just agree with them on everything, but someone who they feel like is, is genuine, authentic, and also is going to tend to fight for what they believe is best. And sometimes people come along. We've seen the public change their opinions on a lot of major issues. Gay marriage is one of those issues that's happened right here in North Carolina over the past 10 years where that uh, position has changed a lot. So you see people's opinions change and sometimes what is uh, a little bit outside of the mainstream one day can become completely mainstream the next. So, yeah, because you mentioned Latino voters, and I just saw a piece of uh, Van Jones on CNN, apparently, uh, you know, hammering Democrats for adopting the Latin X uh, descriptor, which Latinos don't like. And <laughs> so I just kind of wonder, is that an example? Do you have an example of going too far? Yeah, so I think that when it comes to you know, the things that people talk about and how they like to identify themselves is definitely something that you want to uh, engage with those communities and see how they prefer it. Um, and I think that's one of the things that we need to uh, definitely do on uh, all sides, uh, on the Democratic side and on the Republican side. Um, but, you know, when it comes down to it, um, you're not going to get everything right in politics. But I think people will give you a little bit of a pass if they believe you're genuine and your, your heart's in the right place. And your work is in the right place. Chaz Beasley, Charlotte attorney, former North Carolina representative. Uh, appreciate your time, sir. Thanks so much. Thanks, Pete. Happy Friday. All right. Yes, sir. You too. And uh, go catch the, the rest of the Murdoch trial. It's ongoing. All right. <laughs> News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Welcome to the show, by the way. <laughs> Happy Friday. 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. You can email Pete at thepetecalendarshow.com. Uh, and uh, you can always hit me up on uh, Twitter, at Pete Callender. Uh, And I did get this email from... Yeah, thank you from uh, from David, who sent me the uh, the link to the story... How Latin X and other woke inclusive language has gone overboard, according to liberal pundits. <laughs> it's a joke. And they quote, two liberal guests admitted 
yesterday on CNN that they have grown tired of terms like Latinx, arguing that supposed inclusive language is an invention of, quote, white leftists and not representative of the views of normal Americans. And this is kind of why I asked Chaz Beasley about whether or not progressivism can ever go too far. And I, I was happy to hear him say that, yes, it can. Um, I offered up the uh, I offered up the example of Latinx um, and he kind of sounded like he agreed with it. But then he also said, look, you know, norms change. And I get that, too. Language changes and things that you didn't think were possible, like the Overton window has shifted. And so things you didn't think politically possible before now become possible. Sure. But there is this is one of the one of the flaws I would submit of of leftism in general, which is that there is no limiting principle. It just keeps going. It's at the core of the belief. Right. I mean, the the word itself, progressivism, it's always, quote, progressing. It never arrives. Right. You never get to the perfected or the good enough status. You never achieve a, uh, a point in the society or the governance of it that is acceptable. And let's just make sure that this is the way we operate now. It's always push for more. It's always more. And I said the same thing with regard to, uh, with regard to transgender bathroom use under HB2. I simply asked, where's the end zone? Just tell me. What is it you, where is it you're trying to get to? What is it? Is it same, or uh, uh, open bathrooms for everybody? Just, you know, one bathroom from now on that everybody uses? Showers, that sort of thing? Like a complete teardown of any kind of segregated by sex uh, facilities? Is that the end zone? I thought these were reasonable questions for me to ask. Because I'd like to know where you would like to see us go, and then we can have a discussion about whether or not we want to actually go there. Because some people don't want to go where you want to go. That's why they call it progressivism, right? It's because progressively, they just wear you down. <laughs> they just keep advancing the, you know, the long march through the institutions. Notice, you know, the long march through the institutions, this is the Gramscian neo-Marxism, they never actually arrive Anywhere. Well, yes, except like the death tolls and such, but they never arrive at some place where it's like, yay, we've won. We've we've accomplished what it is that we were trying to do. It's always just the long march through the institutions. There isn't any kind of end zone offered. And I, I submit to you that that is one of the fatal flaws of that philosophy. So this piece at Politico starts off uh, and this uh, was like, uh, what, two days ago, three days ago. It's a state Democrats have been buzzing about for years as a battleground hotspot, one expected to draw in big spending on the presidential race, a marquee governor's race and congressional elections that could tip the tightly divided House in 2024. But the party has never been able to push North Carolina into true toss up state status like it has with Arizona or Georgia. Democrats have not won the state's electoral vote since Barack Obama, his heralded 2008 victory, and they haven't won a Senate race since then either goes on to say later that uh, that has left North Carolina Democrats having to fight for the resources that now are flowing freely into places like Arizona and Georgia, two of the most tightly divided battlegrounds in America, which, by the way, did not vote for Obama in 2008. I mean, that's that's pretty remarkable, right? Just over a little bit more than a decade later, I guess, uh, what, a decade and a half, 15 years after Obama won North Carolina, albeit very you know, very close race there. 
But um, Georgia, Arizona, both went for McCain. But now they're blue. Now they're, 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 they're purplish and turning bluer and bluer. And so the fear here among Democrats is that they're not going to get the money. They're not going to get as much money flowing into the state as they have in the past. And they make the argument, my good friend Ray Cooper, the governor, uh, who is you know term limited now, he's not going to be able to run for re-election, but he's head of the Democratic Governors Association. And you know he says this is really, really important. We need to keep getting a lot more money. He says he's working to make the argument uh, that from the president on down, North Carolina should chart the top of their priority list in 2024. Show us the money. That's what Ray is saying. God have the money. Interviews with nearly a dozen state Democratic elected officials and strategists yielded a range of problems, including a weak in-state party infrastructure, a series of less than inspiring federal candidates, and not enough investment from national. So these are the three major issues Democrats say they have in trying to flip the state blue. More details on this in a moment. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Got a tweet at Pete Callender. It's a Pete tweet. This one comes from Justin. Uh, Pete, anytime somebody says voters are looking for authenticity, it means they believe they just need a candidate that can lie in a believable manner. Yeah, it does kind of sound like that sometimes. Oh, sorry. That's uh, It does. Look. Well, I appreciate Chaz Beasley coming on. Um, I, I, you know, I'm not trying to nail him. He's not in elected office anymore, but I mean, he is, you know, in politics, obviously he was offered up as a person to speak about this, uh, about this Politico piece. Um, but his, you know, a lot of his response did seem to be along the lines, what we hear all the time, which is it's a messaging problem. And sometimes it is right. So a lot of times it is with candidates or campaigns and such. But it is always the reflexive response that I hear whenever Democrats and media, but I repeat myself, are trying to explain why they lost a particular campaign or an election cycle. And they it, they always talk about how the message didn't get out, how if people just heard the message, they totally would have been on board. They never they never uh, consider that. Maybe they did hear your message and they weren't interested in buying it. And to his point about uh, black voters, particularly not turning out and young voters as well. This was a big problem and it's outlined in the uh, political story as well, that the youth vote did not turn out for Democrats in North Carolina either. Uh, they, They didn't turn out for Republicans, but they didn't turn out. And I've gone over some of the voter registration numbers um, our friend Dr. Andy Jackson over at the John Locke Foundation has uh, he's always tracking this stuff and they're doing you know voter roll list maintenance right now and so there's a a lot of shifting going on as people who have died or they've moved out of state and they're cleaning up the rolls as they do every two years so there's a lot of movement and so Jackson tracks all of that and on a week by week basis you can see Republicans keep picking up more registered voters. And more registered voters keep registering unaffiliated as well. But Democrats keep losing. And so right now, 
unaffiliated voters uh, are the, by registration, the number one voting uh, group in North Carolina. There are more unaffiliated registered voters than in either of the two parties. Number two is the Democrats. Number three is the Republicans. But Democrats are losing registered members. And if Republicans keep gaining them, you know, and a lot of the jokes that we make about, hey, you came here from the Northeast, you came here from California, uh, you know, leave your voting habits behind. There are a lot of people that are coming here because, because of their voting habits, right? They are more conservative and they are fleeing those states and they are arriving here. And I suspect that's why we're seeing an increase in the GOP registrations. Now, he is correct. Beasley was correct. And I agree uh, that uh, that the, you know, the uh, Mecklenburg County, Wake County, you know, blue dots that are turning bluer. And he's saying that's going to be very hard for Republicans to ever win. I agree. We don't uh, we I'm not a Republican, but limited government people do not occupy a single seat on the county commission. Limited government people. You got Tark Bakari and Ed Driggs on city council. And who knows how long that's going to last. You know, so Democrats keep you know, fortifying their uh, their fiefdom here and in Raleigh and in Asheville. Same thing. They, there are no elected representatives for limited government voters out there. Right. If you I mean, and, and that has a practical impact. And it's a question I threw out a couple years ago to uh, to Brent Woodcox, who works in the state Senate. He's a lawyer. He works on campaigns and stuff um, or not on campaigns. I'm sorry. He's a. Uh, He's a lawyer for the legislative leaders, uh, Senator Phil Berger, for example. And I, and, uh, and I asked him, like, why should Republicans or libertarians or limited government people, why should people of the right help to build cities? Why? What's in it for them? To what? To, to cash out and then move away? Is that the idea? You help to build a city and then you have to leave it because you will no longer be welcome to help build it. That's what happens. That's what's happened in Charlotte. It's what's happened in Raleigh. It's what's happened in Asheville, in Durham, right? These places don't elect Republicans. And if they do, it's one, maybe two in, in Charlotte. There, is, there, ha, there was not a single Republican on the Asheville City Council. I think the entire nearly decade I was there, those who attempted to run could never get in. Um. Mecklenburg County, right? All county commissioners, all uh, all Democrat now. And so what happened is over the years, you had this sort of good faith, bipartisan effort to help improve the city and the lot for its people. And as more and more people arrived, they kept voting Democrat. Republicans now don't get any seat at the table. And when that happens, now it becomes an intra-party thing. And it becomes about the personal politics and party politics. And by the way, not for nothing, but this is how North Carolina was run for like a century and a half under the Democrat machines. It was one party. The primaries are all that mattered. Republicans could never win. And at a practical level, if you are of a limited government mindset and you would like to volunteer to be on some sort of government, uh, you know, committee, right? Like an advisory committee of some sort, you don't get that spot. You can't get on those those boards if you are if you are a, a nonprofit and you're trying to do work but you you know you need to have a good relationship with the government and you're trying to advise them on things do you get the meetings 
if you are all of a limited government Republican persuasion? Do you get those meetings? Do you have a seat at that table? Can you can you effectively make your case? I would submit not. And so what ends up happening? The party dictates, and however the party goes, so goes the governance. And if that's the case, just look around, and what, did, what, what, what is the nature of the discussion we, we just had with Chaz Beasley and the nature of this political piece? There is a debate inside the Democrat Party about how far leftist do we go, right? This is, the, this is their fight. I'm not saying those ideas don't exist over in the Republican Party, too, but this is, this is what you get when you have one-party control. And Democrats know this, by the way, because they make the very same argument about Republicans up in Raleigh that control the state. They make the exact same argument, which is why I'm a fan of the Charlotte City Council moving to a strictly uh, district setup. We've got 11 seats on the city council. If you want to make one at-large, elected citywide, make it the mayor pro tem spot. And then turn all of the other um, seats into 10 district seats. Make the district smaller. You will have more representation. You'll have better representation. And you'll have more of a focus on core services. So back to this uh, Politico article. Mirroring national trends, North Carolina's urban-rural divide reveals a stark partisan split an intractable problem for Democrats as the state boasts the second largest rural population behind only Texas. Did you know that? It's funny how reading this book, the, uh, the paradox of politics by Rob Christensen, Rob Riel, who Christensen, and um, well, he's the one who he was a columnist for the news and observer. And he could, they never had any idea that John Edwards was involved in all of the scandal that he was. Anyway, um, he, he wrote this book, and it's a fascinating read through, you know, North Carolina's political history. I recognize what is politics, to, where they tend to lean, so I understand that. But in in reading through the, uh, you know, the write-ups, the historical write-ups here, it's obvious that the very same uh, coalitions existed throughout the course of these states' history here. And how often we were compared just to Texas when it came to like farms, when it came to, uh, what was the other one, The like most amount of outhouses, most amount of, uh, uh, or lack of plumbing, I should say, lack of indoor plumbing. Uh, we were very, very low. We had um, uh, more roads than everywhere else except Texas at one point. A lot of people don't realize, like a lot of people sleep on North Carolina, you know? When Democrats fail to turn out their core base in urban corridors, Republicans' rural edge becomes insurmountable, And in 2022, Democrats struggled with exactly that. Some Democrats argue that it all came down to cash. Others point to the party's infrastructure, which they say is still missing a critical year-round organization that can mobilize and turn out voters. Have they squandered the Moral Monday movement? I'm not so sure that this is true. I'm not so sure how true this is, that that they don't have a decent infrastructure. It's possible, but I'm not so sure. So one of the people quoted in the uh, Politico piece, Democratic Congressman Wiley Nickel, he of uh, the Roadrunner commercials, or uh, cartoons, rather. Uh, No, he was a former state lawmaker as well. Um, And he says that uh, he believes what works in North Carolina is to reach into the middle. (laughs) Wiley Nickel got a 14 rating on the conservative index by Civitas. 14 out of 100. Zero makes you the leftist of the or the leftiest of the leftist, right? 
100 is a perfect conservative score. He's at 14, and he's saying what works in North Carolina is to reach into the middle. He says there's a vast group of voters in the middle, and they don't want people on the far right, and they don't want people on the far left. Again, a 14, just heads up. All right. And uh, he says anybody who watched our race knows that we are running against extremism in both parties and on the issues that mattered to most folks in the middle. Running against extremism is already a clear theme of Josh Stein's campaign. See, now I would point out, well, hang on a second. Let me, let me read this next quote. This comes from Jim Blaine, a Republican strategist. Uh, and he said, Josh Stein's opening salvo, where he attacked Mark Robinson as a member of the KKK, the first black lieutenant governor attacked as a, as a Klansman, um, says that uh, this is proof that, quote, they don't think they can carry the day on the merits of their candidates alone, so they have to make it about the other guy. North Carolina is a competitive state, but it's a Republican-leaning state. So you have to nominate a centrist if you're a Democrat to win. you got to nominate a centrist, and they don't tend to nominate those candidates. Right. Wiley Nickel is in a gerrymandered district for himself. I'm sorry, the court drew that district. So, of course, it's not gerrymandered, even though it kind of is, so he can win it. But whatever. He's in a safe seat. And so he can run to the left because he has that luxury. This idea that, oh, you got to appeal to the middle coming from him is rich. But also the Democratic Party has a real problem here. It's why they lost that seat that Madison Cawthorn held. Right? Because Democrats out there in Western North Carolina, they cannot bring themselves to nominate a Heath Shuler again. They just can't do it. Which is part of the problem when your little blue dots get bluer and bluer and bluer and bluer. They think that they control the entire district. Right? Charlotte, Mecklenburg could have its own congressional district alone. But they always try to draw, right, the district so so chunks of it go into other districts. But theoretically, Charlotte should have its own congressional district. That makes sense. You get a district, it's just yours. You get a district, just yours. Oh, by the way, do you see Alma Adams voted against the uh, We Hate Socialist resolution? <laughs> yeah, I'll get to that. I'll get to that in the next hour. I mentioned also that Latinx thing, how the lefties went with that, even though like the Latinos were saying, this is a terrible word. We hate it. It's not our language. Stop saying it. Hispanics are increasingly up for grabs in competitive elections. It's not a myth. John Hood wrote about it a couple of weeks back. According to exit polls, Democratic candidates for Congress attracted 69% of self-described Hispanic voters in 2018. 69% 2018. That number shrunk by about half. By about half. It's now 60. That's a pretty big drop. Went from basically 70% down to 60%. Here in North Carolina, CNN exit polls estimated that Sherry Beasley won only 52% of Hispanics. The Associated Press pegged her share at about 56%. John Hood goes on to say that, as I have argued on numerous occasions, framing political contests on issues in terms of urban interests versus rural interests is inaccurate. It glosses over the largest block of voters, suburbanites, which is why... I really do hope that Democrats take Reverend Barber's advice and ignore the suburbs. Stop chasing those voters. It's true these terms lack consistent definitions, Hood says. The inner suburbs of northern Mecklenburg County are rather different from the outer suburbs of Guilford County. 
the exurbs of Harnett County or the suburban outskirts of smaller cities from the mountains to the coast. But if you identify your community as suburban, it means at least that you think of yourself as urban or rural. You don't think of yourself like that, right? If you're calling yourself suburban, it means you're, you're, not, you're not thinking of yourself in the urban or rural mindset. And in exit polls from 2022, 46% of North Carolina voters described their community as suburban. 30% urban, 24% said they were in rural areas, and Ted Budd won the suburban vote by 11 points. Go take a look, though, in Arizona. Democrat Mark Kelly, he beat his Republican challenger among suburban voters. So did Democratic candidates in Nevada, as in New Hampshire. GOP Senate candidates in Georgia and Pennsylvania, they won their suburbs, but the, na- the margins were too narrow to overcome the big losses in the urban counties. This is why Republicans need to keep fighting in the, uh, in the urban areas for the votes that still remain there. But at some point, at some point, there aren't enough to make it worth your while. At some point, the juice is not worth the squeeze. Finally, John Hood says pre-election polls are generally more accurate in 2022 than in past election cycles. They had Bud lead Beasley by 3.8, and he won by 3.2. So there's that. Um, Also, the uh, editorial board over at the Charlotte Observer was very, very upset over the election results. They said that the, uh, the state has dodged a GOP tsunami, but it's still bleeding red. There's at least one reason for many North Carolinians to breathe a sigh of relief. Governor Cooper's veto power remains intact. (gasps) Yay! But in a tricky midterm environment, this is sort of a win. It is sort of a win for Democrats. At least that's, it's not nearly as bad as it could have been across the country. Democrats may hold the, they held the, uh, the Senate. They only lost the House narrowly. And it may sting. Republicans maintain an iron grip on this state. And that remained evident this year, particularly in statewide races that are not subject to gerrymandering. This is always an inconvenient fact for a lot of a lot of our friends on the left is that Republicans keep winning the majority of the the statewide races. They have a majority on the the Council of State, the 10 statewide uh, seats. The worst result might not have been Ted Budd's victory, but the Republicans sweep of key judicial races. Republicans flipped. Both state Supreme Court seats on the ballot this year, right? They got the 5-2 majority. And now Republicans in the legislature are asking them to go back and reassess prior rulings from the left-wing court that preceded it.